Hey everyone, it's Madison. Just want to say thank you all for waiting for the second month of our new lineup. I am very excited to have you all here and back with us. This episode was made and produced by Ray, so thank you Dr. Ray for all the work and effort. I have some announcements coming out later this week and I cannot wait to share with you quite a bit actually. So thanks y'all. I really appreciate everything you've all done by, you know, showing us your love and support. We wouldn't be here without you. Thanks. This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. Coming to you live from a radio tower near you, studying the intersections of video games and science. This is Pokey Science. Well, 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 welcome everyone to an episode of Pokey Science, a podcast chat fest where an interdisciplinary group of Pokemon enthusiasts gather around to talk about science and culture in the Pokemon world. I'm your episode host today, Dr. Ray, an Indigenous American scientist, artist, and Pokey fan, and a special guest is joining me today to talk about Pokemon and science. Who is it that I'm joined by today? Hey everyone, um, Ray, thank you for having me. I'm uh, I'm uh, Dr. Rahul Roy. I'm a uh assistant professor of uh, plant biology at uh, a women's uh, liberal arts university in St. Paul, Minnesota, St. Catherine University. And I am a plant biologist by profession. My research is on plant biology, but I also primarily teach uh, students, undergraduates uh, about biology, intro biology, animals, bacteria, viruses, everything. So I'm, I'm a total biology nerd. Uh, but but I definitely research around the realm of plant biology. Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit about your research, and how did you get interested in that topic? Yeah. So so uh, I'm I'm gonna go back a little bit to give you perspective on how I ended up where I did. So I I actually uh, in high I I'm from Calcutta in India or Kolkata, India, which is a historic city. Used to be the uh, seat of the British colonial capital. Um, and so I was, um, I, I, I went to college there and I was an undergraduate in botany, but my heart was still fixed on becoming uh, a doctor. But while studying botany, I, um, I, I kind of did a field trip uh, to the Himalayan uh, forests uh, to collect plants. And I kind of always say that I went into that forest and came back out changed. I just having seen the lush, uh, you know, uh, groups of plants from mosses to giant trees, I was just hooked. And so from there, I uh, was really interested in molecular biology. So I, I enrolled in a master's program in plant biotechnology in southern India in a University of Hyderabad. And from there, really got interested in uh, agricultural research because I really wanted to uh, figure out how plants can be made more resilient for all the stressors in the environment. Uh, disease was my pick of choice. So I used to research rice diseases uh, at a rice research institute in Calcutta. And then from there, uh, just by uh, a chance, I met someone from Iowa State University and went over to, um, from a city of millions to a city of 30,000 uh, in Ames, <laughs> Iowa. So that was a big change, but it really kind of helped me figure out what I wanted to do. And surprisingly, for those of you who are listening and are always wondering, what do you want in life? What do you want to do? Um, this is where I always say, you know, let it flow. Because 
I actually came here to do agricultural research, but I ended up working in a cell biology lab, uh, and it, I was funded by NASA to figure out how plants would grow in space and how they would sense gravity. Um, so that was my PhD in genetics over there. Uh, found some cool things about how plants move, uh, and then uh, continued on into a totally different field um, on nectar biology. So basically <laughs> started studying how flowers produce the sugary sweet liquid that attracts pollinators called nectar. And uh, yeah, worked at the University of Minnesota uh, for um, another five years researching nectar and uh, really missed uh, mentoring undergraduates uh, full time. So decided to become a professor at a smaller liberal arts uh, undergraduate institution uh, which uh, w has been very satisfying because I've not only been able to continue some of my research, but I've been able to teach a lot of first-gen uh, incoming students, you know, the value and the, the beauty of plant biology research. So in, in, a, in an environment where most students come in as pre-meds or pre-PT, pre-PA, uh, whatever, um, it's, it's always good to get a couple of students uh, kind of really change their um, so so I'm, I still continue on nectar research. I have some other projects which can come up later, but I'm still continuing some of our NASA-funded research to study how plants would grow in space someday. So those are my two foci, uh, nectar and space biology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the space biology one is new to me because, fun fact, you and I had met each other in person a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I had just assumed that you were always a plant person, so I'm very surprised to hear that you were pre-med route and then switched it up completely. Yeah, switched it up. And, and space biology, yeah, and, and you know, Ray, I, I should have uh, talked a little bit about this, but we're actually in the middle, in a class, in the middle of a plant biology class where uh, we've actually bought uh, lunar and Martian soils. Uh, AKA regoliths. So these are mm. not the actual ones from the from Moon and Mars, but these are chemically and texturally completely similar to what was collected by these missions. Oh, that's pretty cool. So our students are starting this uh, semester, uh, half a semester long investigation on what would be needed to grow plants on these substrates uh, with minimal inputs from Earth, uh, be it uh, chemicals, fertilizers, etc. And, and if so, will the plants grow to look like what they look like on Earth? Because, you know, eventually we are going to go up there and we'll, you know, we can't bag all our 10 years worth of salad. So, <laughs> stuff there. so, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of variables like, you know, gravity. So some of the stuff like gravity, we can't mimic here on a large scale. But, but I can always, uh, you know, talk about that later if a question pops up. Um, yeah, you tell me, I'm, I'm, I can talk about my research forever. So. <laughs> yeah, we may have to have you back on to talk about this other topic about All growing right. plants yeah. in space. And Pokemon in space, I'm sure there is uh, yes. potential for that too. <laughs> yes, yes. And on the topic of Pokemon, what can you tell the listeners about your background in Pokemon? So if you ask me about uh, Pokemon names and like a lot of details, I might not be able to tell you, but Pokemon is something that we didn't grow up with in India, but we had heard whispers of it. At least my... Mm -hmm background and my circle, my family, there was no mention of Pokemon. Cartoons in India would primarily be Western cartoons that would be broadcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't get much manga. And, and, I, and I'm, and, and, you know, like Pokemon was definitely something that I never saw on TV. 
Um, and cards, Pokemon cards were definitely not a thing. But as I came to the US, I started seeing a lot of my colleagues who were Pokemon fans. And then I saw my first card. And then I saw Pikachu for the first time. And I was kind of hooked. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, Pikachu is such a, such a poster child of Pokemon. It's just such a unique Pokemon that it can draw any, uh, you know, Pikachu can draw anyone in. Mm-hmm. Um, but but from there, my um, it was when I met my um, future wife, her brother's son was a big Pokemon fan and he had albums and albums of cards and he would always be on his Nintendo 3DS playing. So that's when I started watching some of these games. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think in 2017 or 16, Pokemon Go came out. Oh, yep. And that kind of was, was it 2016, 17? I think so. I think 2016. Yeah, so I was like an early adopter of Pokemon Go. Like, I think it launched and I was there. And I was like walking all across St. Paul, Minnesota, <laughs> collecting Pokeballs and, you know, like uh, giving uh, things to people, hatching eggs. So I was definitely had a very big Pokemon <laughs> phase, uh, evolving things, going to like lakes to get water Pokemon, going to like rocky areas to get rock Pokemons. And, and so, yeah, learned a lot, evolved a lot. And uh, then one day just kind of didn't lose interest, but just got busy. Uh, But recently uh, have been eyeing a lot of the Nintendo Switch games, especially Pokemon Snap just Mm -hmm. looks like it would be so much fun. I'm a big photographer and just the concept of walking around, taking pictures and documenting Pokemon just seems so good. So I haven't bought a Switch yet. And personally, I think um, I'm I'm very close to it just because I want to play that game yeah so so that's my tryst with pokemon and if you had to ask me what my favorite pokemon is i i really like how magic arps evolve <laughs> into something that you wouldn't even have imagined right i think i the first time i evolved magic arps into and i'm sorry i always struggle pronouncing is it gyarados yeah i, th- I think most people say gyarados gyarados yeah so so anyways yeah I think I still remember the day that I think I shouted in my room and my wife came running out. She was like, what? And I was like, I just got a, a fish turned into a giant. <laughs> oh, God, that's good. I highly recommend you pick up a Switch. It will be uh, even a Switch Lite worth the money is what I'd recommend. Yeah, and I know Pokemon Legends are really good too. Mm. Uh, Arceus, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's Scarlet and Violet now. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Sword and Shield. So you have quite a selection. Yeah, and if you I play know. Pokemon Snap, we can have you back on because we want to do another recap episode of one of those. Yeah, and you know, maybe we can even tie it in with the whole uh, citizen science movement of documenting mm. species through iNaturalist. Have you, have you, you've probably heard of iNaturalist, right? I've heard of it, but I haven't used it myself. Yeah, so iNaturalist is pretty cool. And it's basically like, it has the same kind of dynamics of, you know, taking pictures of, any uh, organism and hoping to ID it to the species level, if not to the genus level, but then it geotags it for citizen science projects. But then you also get badges. So if you like unlock insects, you get a badge. So it it definitely gamifies (laughs) the whole ecological documentation of species. It's real life Pokemon. It is real life Pokemon. Yeah, I I actually... Um, so yeah, we could always do that too. Um, <laughs> I'd love that. Yes. All these ideas. Oh, so cool. Well, should we talk about some, uh, science? Sure. Always. Sweet. 
So the first question I have for you in regards to your science and your expertise is, what is nectar? (laughs) What is nectar? Well, I can start off by saying this, that nectar is definitely not just sugar water. So everybody knows Mm. honey, and they usually know that nectar is what bees go for along with pollen to make honey. So the natural assumption is that nectar is just straight up sugar water. Now, you know, it is primarily a, a very sugary reward that is produced by flowers to attract pollinators. And when I say pollinators, I mean anything that comes to a flower and takes pollen from it to another flower. So pollinators are not just insects, right? Mm-hmm. We are pollinators too sometimes. I was going to ask, are we pollinators? Yeah. Because it and, can and be accidentally transferring we, pollen. We are accidentally, right? but also when we are breeding flowers to make new new varieties of crops, mm. we are technically taking pollen from one plant and putting it on another, and we are creating a new uh, variety. So so we are pollinators. Mm. But uh, in nature, naturally, insects are a big one. Uh, rodents are big. Mouse. If you Google pictures of uh, mouse sleeping in flowers, you can see <laughs> these beautiful uh, little dormouse oh, kind of things yeah, sleeping in flowers. Um, Cute. Yeah and um yeah, and and birds are big birds also drink nectar bats are big uh, geckos any kind of a lot of uh, reptiles are are also pollinators so so nectar is what flowers have evolved over the evolution of flowering plants they have produced nectar to attract insects and other pollinators because for something to be able to take pollen from one plant to another, they need to first be attracted to that flower. There are a couple of ways plants can do that. They usually have colors that attract pollinators. They have, depending on whether you're looking at an insect or a vertebrate, insects might not perceive the color because you know they see things in a very different way. So they might see some kind of a UV patterning on it, whereas a gecko might see a bright red color. Uh, the next thing is aromas. Uh, flowers will attract by smell. But finally, for that pollinator to keep coming back to that species of flowers, it has to reward it, right? And that's where nectar comes in. So if you rummage into a flower as a pollinator and find something sweet, you now have visually identified that flower species as having a reward. And that's when you start visiting that. So this has actually uh, led to a very directed, a coordinated evolution of the pollinator and the flower. So the flowers have adapted their nectar to suit the <laughs> the palatability of the pollinator. Um, and, mm. and that's why it's not just sugar water, because what we have found, the community has found over decades is that there are a variety of chemicals. Uh, there are oils, there are lipids, there are amino acids, proteins. Uh, there are a lot of secondary specialized metabolites like nicotine has been found in it, caffeine oh. has been found in it, right? Hmm. And, and so these kind of chemicals are unique to every species of flower is because they have tailored that composition to a pollinator that visited it the first time, suppose, you know, millions of years ago. And that led to this nice uh, compatibility because the the pollinator got fed and, and got some benefit. And then the flower, basically, because the pollen went from that one flower to another flower of that same species, Uh, And for those of you who uh, just need a quick refresher of plant biology, 
pollen are basically uh, they're like the packages the the to go boxes that protect the plant's sperm in it and basically when a pollen which is very resistant to dehydration and the external environment when it lands on another flower's female part called the stigma and recognizes it it then starts producing the sperm which then goes and fertilizes the eggs of that flower and that produces seeds and then this process kickstarts another beautiful process that we are very dependent on the flower then becomes a fruit right so you can mm-hmm. imagine that uh, if we if these pollen didn't go across the different flowers of the same species you would not get seed production and food production and it would also basically mean that that species would die out so the the flowers uh, and the the plants have definitely benefited from producing the nectar and that's why nectar still persists in these lineages whereas the the pollinators have definitely also benefited from the nutritional quality of these nectars and are still around sometimes pollinating specific species so bees might be able to go to a lot of flowers and drink nectar but there are certain pollinators that are very specifically bound to certain species because they get some benefits from it so essentially you can see based on the ramblings of my mind nectar is pretty complicated and and it's 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 definitely not just sugar water and every day we find something cool in it like it's it's almost like i tell people that every scientist anyone insect biologists ecologists I, i tell them take one nectar project up study one flower take one study nectar one nectar. yeah <laughs> it's just it's just because the community of nectar biologists is not as big as you would think it is and they definitely we don't have the time or the resources to pursue questions every question about a nectar like if some lab might be studying the chemistry somebody else could do the eco- ecology of it they could study you know mm-hmm. when is a nectar produced what are the what kind of insects are visiting it what time are they coming at i don't even want to start talking about the microbiomes of nectar <laughs> or maybe we will right so so mm-hmm. you can see that there is definitely a lot of secrets in there and i will eventually be talking about one of the projects that i was involved in with the colored nectar but i i think that's coming up in a bit so So what you're telling me is that I should somehow incorporate nectar into my research. I will say, I mean, you know, Ray, <laughs> your research, um I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I guess do. Yeah, I I don't know. How would you do you can you think of anything how you would want to incorporate flowers into your research uh and and nectar into your research? <laughs> This could be like a a side tangent that we add for the yes. candid candid yes. questions of uh it's funny cuz my one of my projects is kind of going into the realm of wild rice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which is like I've said I say it a million times but I'm like not really a plant person so I really don't understand the Yeah. Um even like the basic anatomy and stuff like that but I've been mm-hmm. kind of exposed more and more to wild rice and kind of how it how pollination in that instance occurs but then it's also like a plant that just like floats on the water. Yeah. And it's like kind of fascinating to me to think about these plants that are isolated in that way. Yeah, and and cereals and cereals like wild rice rice wheat these are all wind pollinated so they particularly don't need to attract insects or other pollinators mm-hmm. so they have actually lost or are at least uh, as far as i know uh, cereals uh, don't produce nectar in their flowers their oh. flowers are also very reduced and very small mm, okay and so they're uh, they have kind of almost become independent they have lost the dependence 
on something to come mm-hmm. and drink from the flower. Okay. So yeah, wild rice. But but you know what would be interesting is if there are neighboring species around wild rice mm-hmm. that have flowers that attract pollinators and how does that ecosystem support so because you know like are those pollinators coming to basically collect some of the seeds from something like wild rice and then maybe potentially flying away to a farther away place and planting those seeds accidentally Mm -hmm. is the way that your community spreads right i mean so that's another way that plants propagate is they want to be eaten the seeds that way when they when the animal passes it out through its digestive canal it lands in a spot that is away from the mother plant which then spreads it reduces competition etc so yeah great questions i mean this is why i say you know like nectar is <laughs> <it's a laughs> gateway science <laughs> mm. and i just like the word it's so good right well i have a a really pressing question that I think yes. I've want, wondered for many years, especially because of my exposure to the concept of nectar in v- different video games. Yeah. I think of like Pikmin comes to mind back yeah. in the day for me and now yeah. Pokemon, but can I eat nectar directly? You know, so this is what I say. You will find so many instances of kids growing up, playing, you know, sucking on flowers, you know, like lilac flowers are pretty common. Mm. Kids suck on the, the tubes on the back. Oh, sweet. I have seen some Minnesotans drinking nectar from honeysuckle flowers a lot. Oh. And and I I would have probably said that, yeah, yeah, nectar is fine. You know, it has uh, sugar in it. It's sweet. But I actually now am a firm believer in be careful, especially if you feel like you are either immunocompromised or oh. if you have allergens. And, and the reason is because there are a couple of reasons. And I I don't want to like make people paranoid, but we recently, as part of our University of Minnesota's research team, worked with a nectar from a species called Melianthus comosus. Mm -hmm. And and this is from South Africa, and it produces jet black nectar. And then this recently got published in New Phytologist uh, Journal. It's a peer-reviewed journal, and I'm happy to later if you want to share links with your listener. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, one of the authors, the lead authors, actually, um, while collecting in the field, um, accidentally um, sipped some. And accidentally. Also, <laughs> um, and, and actually also brushed against the bush because, you know, the bushes are pretty thick. So it led to a pretty big inflammatory response to the point where, you know, oh. it was pretty, pretty strong and he had to seek medical attention and then later, as the research on the nectar continued to crack the chemistry of the nectar, simultaneously, a medical team, allergy team at the University of Minnesota was also trying to figure out what he reacted to. Mm-hmm. And the nectar's chemistry was cracked. It's a beautiful biochemical reaction, right? I mean, it, it's a jet black color and it is pollinated mm-hmm. by a, a bird. So clearly there is something about that chromatic contrast thing color contrast thing that the birds are seeing and the flowers are red right so black on red creates this beautiful stark imagery so the nectar is actually a chemical 
called ellagic acid, which is kind of like uh, in the same pathway as tannic acid, tannins, which then reacts with iron in the nectar to create this beautiful black compound, uh, iron and ellagic acid combined. And, and this is the same chemical actually that was found in the inks that was used by medieval writers and monks oh. who used to write with quills and they used to boil the bark of trees to, to kind of create this black ink. So it's the same chemical in the nectar. So eventually the, the medical team was able to, you know, work with our author who was also allergic to it to figure out that he was actually allergic to ellagic acid. And that also got mm. published. So so he, he got two papers <laughs> out of Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And 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 you know, he, he's a great friend and he's just I just love his dedication to science and also our team at the University of Minnesota. It's just amazing. So I've worked with my postdoctoral advisor was a professor, uh, Dr. Clay Carter, and he's been doing nectar research for a long time, more than a decade. He's just discovered some very, very critical things about nectars because uh, we didn't know a lot about the molecular side of nectars, how it was produced, how it was pumped out, what are the, the genes and the, the ge- genetic pathways. But then once we cracked the pigment chemistries, it was really fascinating because, you know, it's not been done a lot. The color in nectar is already pretty rare. I think right now we only know about 60 to 70 species of, uh, and, and, you know, I, I wish I had the exact number, but it's definitely below 100. It's below 75 for sure. And these colored nectars are visually very, very stark. And they usually are produced in species that are pollinated by vertebrates. So um, so, oh. so not insects because insects don't perceive those pigments. And so the black nectar clearly is um, being used by the birds to detect it while flying across it. And, and so that's the reason. The other nectar that I worked with that I was kind of like the beginning of these spew of studies that are gonna come out of Dr. Clay Carter's lab was we actually found this flower growing in a greenhouse here at the University of Minnesota that is actually grown in a lot of greenhouses across the world because it's this beautiful blue flower that drips blood red nectar. Ooh, that's so cool story has been published and I, I'm going to send you these links so that you can embed it for the listeners. But essentially, um, this nectar is found on an island. It's endemic to an island in the Indian Ocean called Mauritius. And it is found, actually, it's very endangered. And that's why it's propagated in botanical gardens all across the world. It hangs from a cliff in Mauritius and it's presumed to be pollinated by a gecko, Felsuma. Oh. But nobody's actually seen it in nature being visited by the gecko, but the gecko also lives on the cliff. Uh, some birds also do visit it. Now, my research with this began because I was fascinated by it. One of the things that really kind of blew our minds was when we were looking at this flower very closely, one morning, uh, an undergraduate in our lab, Catherine Hall, went and saw that the nectar was actually yellow in the flower. And then when she went back in a couple of hours with me, we found that it was red. Uh, which was fascinating because it was something that was like, wow, why is the color changing? Eventually, over like a big, big interdisciplinary team worth of research, we figured out that the nectar starts off acidic, becomes red over time because of it turning basic or alkaline. Mm. And then we also found this very unique, like three proteins in the nectar, kind of like, you know, playing around with these beautiful chemical reactions to create this pigment. But then what really blew our mind was uh, very accidentally I made a friend on a bus who also happened to study the retinal, you know, so like the how eyes of 
uh, geckos perceive color, <laughs> what mm-hmm, are the chances? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we were able to kind of show through uh, studies that geckos do get attracted to the red color. It's, it's a real, oh. uh, it's an honest signal that attracts the next. So, so this, this is an example of a beautiful coevolution of a pollinator and a flower to attract them. And incidentally, uh, another species far removed from the island of Mauritius in, in South America has another species that produces a similar red nectar. Same chemistry, very distantly related species, suggesting that you know these kind of isolated areas on Earth, islands hill of mountains where the pressure for natural selection is very high are where some of these very starkly colored nectars are being found because that's where their competition for attracting pollinators is very high. So I I just find this fascinating because it's almost like we know about these flowers, but the chemistry of them have been missed. And the pista resistance, is that what it's called? Yeah, (laughs) I think (laughs) was that when we analyzed the, the pigment of the red nectar, so we, the, the chemistry professor who was helping us, biochemistry professor, Adrian, Dr. Adrian Hegeman, he was convinced that it was not a known pigment. So he did studies and found that mm. the pigment that was giving it the red color actually did not exist in our, in our uh, repository. Oh. So we found a novel pigment in an mm. islandic species and you know the process was of making this pigment was patented by the University of Minnesota, and we still don't know a lot about this pigment. You know, like it's it's new. Is it antimicrobial? Is it? Does it do something for inflammation? Does it have any other role besides just coloration? So colored pigments really are an enigma, and I think mm-hmm. the more we find, who knows what's out there, right? I mean. Uh, this group of ours has published two of them and I, a couple more are coming and then some other groups in the world are also working on colored nectar. So yeah, stay tuned, you know. Very cool. Very cool. Hopefully people will be able to see some of these nectars after listening or these nectar colors after listening to the episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this may be a really hard question for you, but what is your favorite color of nectar? Oh, it has to be red. Oh yeah. I feel that. Yeah. Red's it, my it, favorite color. Yeah. And it's a blood red color and it's just so stark and you know when i send you the paper people will be able to see it so or if if people are can't even wait to click on it the the species name is nesocodon mauritianus nesocodon mauritianus is the name of the species it's a blue bell-shaped flower me and my me and my postdoc advisor clay we actually took a picture of the flower under some artificial lighting and in, under a black background. And uh, we, when we published the paper, uh, we actually sent it to the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences uh, as a cover, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they accepted it. So, so oh, cool! So, th- so it's a very stark color. So, so you know, they just were like, "Yeah, we'll put it on the cover of the magazine." And I was like, "Okay, it definitely draws you in." So red is definitely my favorite. I like yellow too. There are some yellow. Um, <laughs> There's a reluctant. Um, there is one called Dobinia, uh, Dobinia zeheri that produces almost like a translucent purple nectar. Ooh. Um, I've seen brown nectars. I've seen black definitely. And then yellow is there too. I don't think I've ever seen something that is greenish or maybe I just don't know. I've never seen greenish nectar. Cool. Well, shall we talk about some Pokemon and Nectar? Yes. So the first question I have for you is regarding this bird Pokemon called Oricorio. So we see Nectars of different colors in Pokemon Sun and Moon, examples being pink, 
purple, red, yellow. First question I have is, I think you kind of answered this already, is do all these nectar colors exist in real life? Yeah, I mean, red, yellow definitely exists. Purple exists. Pink, I would say it really depends on how you would define pink. But if... if <laughs> the viewer. Yeah, reddish, orange tints, I'm sure exist. The, I think the other thing that we know very little about is what kind of conditions of the soil and the environment change nectar colors, right? I mean, because, mm. you know, I mean, color is something that is built with building blocks, right? So... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If if plants are sucking things in from a certain kind of soil, who knows, right? Maybe the color will turn pinkish. So yeah, but yeah, all these things exist. So that's great. And I actually did not know about Oricorio till you sent me. And it's fascinating that depending on the color of the nectar, it evolves. You know. Yeah. Uh, for listeners, uh, the way that uh, Oricorio works is that it's on. Uh, it's like the one species of Pokemon, but when it eats the different colored nectars, it actually changes its form. And and I think there's been some hypothesizing of if this has a real life basis in it. So I was reading about Oricorio. So Oricorio is. Uh, it, it does not evolve into any other Pokemon, right? It just changes its forms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 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 depending on whether it's had red nectar, it can change into a fire flying type or. Uh, so uh, my question to you before I try to answer this is when Oricorio changes to these different styles and in the Pokemon world, what does that imply? Because I'm trying to understand that before I jump into what I perceive it as. Usually for Pokemon, once they're at their one stage of evolution, or if they don't have an evolution, for the most part, historically, they've stayed the same uh, appearance and they have like the same typing. So yeah, I don't know, they stay a fire typing. But mm-hmm. I think Oreocorio is interesting because it changes its typing, but yeah. it stays the same Pokemon. Yeah. So if you needed something to have fire for an advantage, you would change it to that. I haven't used it personally in Pokemon, but people seem to gravitate towards it. Yeah. You know, Ray, what fascinates me about this thing, because, you know, I, I, I was um, reading about this, is that the, the, their locations are different. Right, mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. Bailey style versus the pom pom style. They're found on different islands. I saw, and mm-hmm. and that is the part that really blew my mind because whoever came up with this clearly was thinking about islandic evolution, because islands are mm-hmm. you know like great places to study evolution because these are land masses that got separated. So you know the 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 pressures of uh, uh, natural selection were different. Uh, predators probably disappeared because they were left back on the mass. And and that's where flowers and pollinators really got to, you know, like really co-evolve together. From an evolutionary perspective of plant-pollinator interactions, what I would perceive this as, so there was a common ancestor, right? Perceive as the Oricorio as being some, having an ancestor that then across different islands evolved or preferred different kinds of nectars and then over time, because the flower that was producing the nectar and that ancestor of Oricorio had to really uh, tighten their interaction, right? They had to almost like, you know, for example, maybe their beak structure had to change. Maybe the way they flew had to change, right? Maybe they were mm-hmm. flying super slow because they had to hover over the flower or maybe they were flying super fast because they mm-hmm. had to hum like a hummingbird, right? And so... When I saw this, I was like, wow, this is definitely somebody was thinking about how an overarching ancestor called Oricorio that was a flying type Pokemon, maybe across different islands where there were different conditions, different species of flowers became 
different styles or aka different species same genus different mm-hmm. species kind of like darwin's finches right i mean mm-hmm. darwin's finches where the beak structures evolved because they had to eat different kinds of seeds i'm just blown away by this because ray i had no idea uh, about oricorio and <laughs> so so i'm <laughs> definitely broadcasting this episode to my <laughs> nectar uh, ecologists and evolutionary biologists because it's, it's just fascinating i i don't know if people know about this but do you think this is uh, pretty well known in even people who play pokemon or, or know about pokemon or is this even one of those sectors of pokemons that a lot of people might not know yeah it actually i think it depends who you talk to and as i declare myself kind of a person who my whole life isn't dedicated to pokemon so i play mm. the games every once in a while and i actually don't even remember oracorio when i played sun and moon okay but i play pokemon go a little bit more frequently and the funny thing is i run into the yellow oracorio all the time okay, and so i had no idea style. all these yep yep that one and i didn't even know that there were these other styles existed but they're region locked so they're in different regions of the world mm-hmm. so if you go to somewhere that's not like north america you will find like the other colors of oracorio or okay, the other forms okay. so i'm like why do i keep seeing this yellow bird all the time it turns out there's a bunch of different ones so it was it was kind of news to me yeah i mean that was the thing that my now of course you know bill nectars you know give uh you know some of this attacks like the psychic and the <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. no but um you know one they'll just give that... you a uh, an allergic reaction. Uh. Yeah, but but you know one thing I will add here, and I don't know how much our listeners are really like interested in hearing so much about nectar from me. But one of the things I would really like people to think about is that nectar can also be pretty toxic. So so there are certain nectars that will only be able to be digested by certain pollinators. If somebody else drinks it like some other insect or bird tries to drink it, they can get very sick from it. And the oh, reason okay. this happens is because you are trying to protect your very precious uh, commodity, right? You have, a plant has invested a lot of energy into making this sugar and producing all these nice little things in it that are going to nourish its pollinator. If somebody else comes and drinks it before the, uh, the actual pollinator can get to it, you have lost that opportunity. Over time, a lot of these toxic metabolites have been pumped into nectar that don't affect the pollinator, but really, really are can 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 almost the insects or the other organisms that try to come drink nectar but are not pollinators mm-hmm. are called nectar robbers. Nectar and, robbers. Yeah, and and this uh, process of deterring nectar robbers is actually a very active area of research. Nectar robbers are essentially going to try to you know take away from this reward that pollinators need. So essentially, plants have uh, been able to tailor the chemistry to be palatable only for pollinators. And so I think what was really fascinating about Oricorio is because it drinks these different nectars from different flowers from different islands and has changed its uh, form. It makes me almost think like, uh, you know, this is exactly what's happening in nature, right? You know, I, I mean, there was an ancestral bird or an ancestral gecko that a long time ago was on the mainland. And as islands formed, some of those uh, populations, some of those, um, you know, subpopulations went onto these islands and then had to adapt to eating and drinking from certain species of flowers. And over time, their morphology, their biology, their biochemistry, uh, or how they be attracted to these flowers change. And, and, and that's where I think Oricorio is such a great example. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, Oricorio could be a great way to teach young Pokemon players about evolution. 
and coherence, yes. right? Because it's it's just fascinating that it's in, mm-hmm. in built in Pokemon. It's kind of blowing my mind as I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I could let you know about it. Mm-hmm. On the topic of because you were talking about how nectar is kind of used in different ways, kind of to to attract or to defend itself against like unwanted mm-hmm. individuals. I actually was trying to do like a search of nectar within Pokemon and. Oracorio is obviously the most basic one, but there's also an instance of this Pokemon called Appleton, which is mm. that quote unquote Apple Nectar Pokemon. And it's the Pokedex describes it as uh, using its ability to produce a bunch of nectar to attract bug Pokemon to prey on, but also uses it for defense. And so you kind of touched on it already, but are there other kinds of examples of nectar being used to attract prey or to defend themselves? Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of, it's really fascinating. So there there have been some studies shown that carnivorous plants actually produce nectar to attract insects. So I think, I, I forget the paper, uh, but I think it's, it's it was a while ago. It was definitely a decade ago. And I don't know since then other studies have come out, but I think pitcher plants for sure, mm. uh, the, you know, the pitcher plants that have the leaves adapt to look like a pitcher. Uh-huh. And, and so inside of the pitcher, it, it fills with rainwater, and then it also has a lot of digestive enzymes. And so basically, if an insect falls into it, it gets broken down, and then all the nutrients, building blocks of the, the insect or whatever, get absorbed by the plant because it's a carnivorous plant. But to get an insect to that pitcher, the boundary, the you know, the upper lip of the vase or the upper lip of the pitcher produces nectar and so once you know once the insect comes and and lands on it to drink the nectar the pitcher is i think structured in a way such that it lands on it tries to drink the nectar and then slips and because the inside surface is uh, super slick uh, and waxy uh, and and you know it has a cuticle that is very slippery the the insect has no way to climb out so so clearly appleton is uh, and I don't know. I mean, it seems like Appleton was around even before this study came out, or maybe the studies have been going on for a while. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming somebody in the field has looked at this happening. So yeah, again, a great way to teach um, students or Pokemon players about how adaptations uh, take place, you know, like to to even attract something, you need to give something, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'm trying to think if other... So I know Rafflesia, the world's biggest flower, which smells like rotting uh, meat, that might produce nectar. I'm so sorry. I should know <laughs> this, or maybe I should have researched this, but but I definitely know they produce that rotting smell to attract flies. But yeah, the pitcher plant, it definitely produces a nectar for attracting... Very cool. I'll have to do some Good digging in. Appleton, huh? Oh, yeah, Appleton. Yeah, you, you, yeah. I've, isn't Appleton also the one that you had said was, or at least uh, I think it was, uh, it creates honey, right? Like com- combi. Oh, combi is the one I think that creates honey. Um, yeah. But that, there's, there's only a few examples I came across in mentions of the Pokedex of nectar being present. So it's, there seems to be a heavy bias towards uh, honey, of course, but that's real yeah. life as well, yeah. I feel. And so so what, what I would be really interested is where are the honey pokemons because you see you said there are quite a bit yeah there's so combi's one and then like vespa queen and i feel like there's maybe a handful of others but they're the ones who make honey and and you know i I was actually reading about combi as you were i was i was talking because um but it was really cool to see that each face of combi has a different taste in nectar (laughs) yes i thought that was so cute I, i had no idea Oh my gosh. So that was kind of mind blowing to me that somebody thought of that, like, you know, each face drinks differently. I mean, you know, it's actually, 
it's really cool to see this that Pokemon has so much nectar references. It's actually it's very heartwarming for me because I really like talking about nectar, and and it's it's good to know that somebody out there who's you know thinking about Pokemons or breaking up Pokemons or you know just whatever whoever has come up with this definitely has some understanding, not some quite quite a bit of understanding about plant pollinator interactions and nectar and all. So mm-hmm. well, the the final question I have for you then is on the topic of nectar, if you could could what nectar related topic plant and or animal would you add to the games since i think we've covered a lot of what is already in the games but it seems like there's a lot of space yeah that's a great question so i i mean there are so many right i think i think one of the things that would be really cool would be to add a nectar attack oh okay if there is a floral, are there flower type Pokemons? Uh, there's a grass type Pokemon. Yeah, I mean, so so I'm saying like anything that anything that shows that nectar can also be tailored to be harmless to something, but can be harmful to something. There could be a nectar squirting attack. Um, mm-hmm. Personally, I think if that is too violent. And we maybe don't want to make a very violent. Um, I, I think the other thing that would be really cool is so these colored nectars are definitely showing, you know, like they, they understand this. I think it would be good to maybe have some color changing nectars that mm-hmm. like, change according to the time of the day or in the game. Because, oh. you know, like if, if there could be some kind of a aspect where you have to be out there at a certain time of the day. Uh huh be collecting a certain color of nectar from the same plant in some game. I think that could really reinforce thinking that nectars are not always the same color, which is what we find in our Nesocodon. That could make it fascinating because somebody in a game might have to like hike up in the morning. I'm sure there are time dynamics in the games, right? So mm-hmm. There are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That'd so be a that pretty cool addition. I think another thing that I really think would be very cool is like, you know, with some of the game's legends, I think it's it's the part where you get uh, teleported back in time, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it would be really cool to kind of incorporate some of these ancestral, like kind of prehistoric flowers producing different kinds of nectar. Maybe even like taking uh, Oricorio and showing that Oricorio's ancestor was completely different. Like Oricorio, the four types of Oricorios probably had a very different beginning compared to uh, the present day Oricorios. Just kind of showing that coevolution has happened or has coevolved. I think definitely more nectar drinking Pokemons would be great <laughs> mm-hmm. because one of the things that could be really cool is depending on the flower shape the pokemon's shape could change right because because oh, you know okay because uh, you know hummingbirds go to flowers that are tubular insects go to flowers that have a lip because when the, the insect or a bee sits on that lip and tries to rummage in for the nectar the pollen comes and touches its uh, its abdomen so so mm-hmm. the shape of the flower is very specific to the shape of the mouth parts of the pollinator so i think if if, if pokemon whoever is involved in you know designing pokemons they could do uh, different nectar seeking pokemons based on the shapes of the flowers that would be really cool those are the main things color changing pokemons would be great color changing nectar would be great in the environment and then depending on which color you drink you could have subtypes and then also i think this one that i just said the shapes of the flowers and different pokemons drinking different you know another thing i would like to say here is health. I have not talked about this, but there are more and more studies showing that nectar pollinators drinking certain kinds of nectar are helping their gut microbiome. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so it's not just, you know, it's not just sugar water, right? It has chemicals, but we're also finding that there are very specific kinds of microbes in nectar that are growing. I mean, think about it. You have a sugary solution sitting out in nature. Of course, there's going to be some yeast or some bacteria that will like to grow in it, but it doesn't spoil. The nectar actually doesn't spoil. So what microbiologists are finding is that the microbes growing in the nectar are actually specialized. They are suited to grow in those environments. And they are somehow able to resist harmful microbes Mm -hmm. who who try to go. But then once these nectars are being consumed, they are also being seeded or, you know, being able to establish in the guts of these pollinators, right? And then that is a that is an area that is very understudied, but it has definitely been shown to have some very high impact discoveries to be made. Like one of the things that recently was found was that there was a nectar that had a chemical called calouine or calonine. And what it did was it basically it disabled a parasite of bees. Oh, that's so cool. Chemic- yeah, so the chemical kind of uh, helps the the bee probably fight the parasite it's almost like it's some kind of a herbal medicine but mm-hmm. but but i think that in pokemon would be really cool because you could almost like heal using certain nectars oh, right? if, if your okay. health is low or something you could you could every pokemon could have a certain floral nectar they could drink <laughs> sorry i'm just going <laughs> i'm just and, and and you know all the ideas for, for all pokemon. the ideas Well, this has been absolutely lovely, Rahul. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about all things nectar. Thank you, Ray. I've had a lot of fun. I I really, I'm, 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 I'm very blown away by uh, some of these uh, Pokemons that you've talked about. And, and I've never thought about some of these Mm -hmm. things in a way I've discussed. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate you making time too for having me on your show. Of course. And we appreciate you the and the time that you've devoted to it. Uh, are there places that listeners could check out your work or uh, follow you at? Yeah, so all I mean, things Nectar? Yeah, so I am I am definitely I'm gonna send some links to my website and my social media profiles. If you are interested in following my work, I I also will send you some of the links to my papers if you would like to read. But otherwise I think reaching me if you wanna talk about nectar or just wanna find out more about nectar, I'm always available to have a chat over any professional like you know, LinkedIn is a great place to follow me and also an email. I'm always happy to chat. I usually end up talking about Nectar to people. I'm surprised always how much I can talk. Every time I feel like I have nothing else to say, but you know, something new always comes up. So I'm happy <laughs> to chat. So, so whoever, whoever is listening to this, if you would like to reach out, shoot me an email or follow me on LinkedIn. And I'm happy to follow up about any other questions that you might have. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ray. I appreciate it. Super cool. Well, maybe I'm going to go look for some nectar colors now. Thank you all for listening today and uh, be on the lookout for other upcoming Pika Science and Pokey Science episodes coming out soon. So thank you very much. Bye-bye. See ya.